It's Global Leadership Summit season. That means we're building up to early August when we get to host uh, what some people have called the very finest leadership event on the planet. And we get to host it right here at the Commons, right here in Bozeman via live satellite feed. And uh, you've heard me talk a lot about this uh, for about the last 10 years now. The Willow Creek Global Leadership Summit has literally been a non-negotiable on my summer schedule. That yearly infusion of a God-sized leadership challenge is really, to me, like a drink of rocket fuel for my soul. And a whole bunch of you have gotten to go to Billings in years past and experience that as well. You know exactly what I'm talking about. But because some of you have not yet got that chance to attend a summit, we wanted to take this weekend, this opportunity to sort of whet your appetite a bit for the kinds of things that God invites all of us to uh, via the summit each August so that you too might make the summit a non-negotiable on your August calendar. And so we're going to tune into a video message today uh, brought to us by a guy named Bill Hybels, who is the founding and senior pastor of Willow Creek Community Church uh, outside of Chicago in a place called Barrington, Illinois. He's also the brainchild, the founder of the Global Leadership Summit. And I have been really, really privileged really privileged to be influenced by a variety of fantastic pastors and Christian leaders over my 30-some year walk with Christ. And I literally count this man, Bill Hybels, as one of my mentors, if even from a long, long way away. And I think after today's message, you'll see exactly why that is. So without any further ado, let's turn our attention to the screens and give ourselves to this matter called a holy discontent, Pastor Bill Hybels. In the last couple of years, I have been vexed about a question pertaining to leadership, a question that vexed me so much, it almost became an obsession in my life. And the only way I could frame the question was to ask it this way. What precedes vision? In leadership settings, we always put vision as the top of the list, at the top of the list. Vision is the most potent weapon in the leader's arsenal. And I wanted to ask the question, what happens inside a leader that is so powerful that it eventually gives birth to a vision at a later point in time? That question started to really work its way into my psyche. We've all been cheering on Billy Graham these past few months as he spoke to hundreds of thousands of people in in the New York City area at, at what has been called his last crusade. Billy has been filling stadiums for almost 60 years. He's had a burning vision to help people all over the world understand the power and the love of Jesus Christ. But my question was this, what happened inside of Billy before he held his first crusade? What happened inside Billy Graham's heart that was so powerful, so incendiary, that it eventually gave birth to the vision of filling stadiums with people who needed to know about Christ. What happened that was so powerful that he went out and rented that first stadium? I reasoned to myself, whatever that experience was, that must have been something. And I went on this assumption that there's some powerful firestorm experience in the lives of most people that sort of forces them into leadership forces them to birth a vision that then they can act on. So I've been thinking about this, obsessed with it. And one day I'm trudging my way through the book of Exodus, just doing my daily Bible reading, which I strongly recommend for every leader. You think I'm kidding? Read your Bible every day. 
Just read your Bible every day. It doesn't have to be long. Just read it every day. And I was reading through the Old Testament book of Exodus. I came across the story of Moses, one of the great leaders in antiquity. And I believe I discovered the defining experience that forced Moses into leadership, whether he wanted to lead or not. I, I think it was his firestorm experience. Let me just refer to the account. If you brought a Bible, it's in Exodus chapter 2. Verse 11 says this, One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and he watched them at their hard labor. Side note, just for context. Moses was a Hebrew, a Jew. He had been raised in Egypt by the Pharaoh's daughter. He was accustomed to the wealth and the privilege and education that accompanied that Egyptian upbringing. But he was not an Egyptian again. He was a Jew. The text says that one day he went out to see his own people, his own people. They were involved in hard labor. Most of you know that the Egyptians had enslaved the Israelites, worked them mercilessly, had them making bricks in the midday sun and so So back to the text in verse 11 again. While Moses is watching the hard labor, the daily oppression of his own people, he sees an Egyptian, an Egyptian soldier we think, beating one of his own people, beating a Hebrew. Now, let me ask you a question. It's not a pleasant one. When's the last time you ever really saw, up close and personal, a physical beating? Most of us have never seen one. I've really only seen one. It sickens me to this day. I was in high school. I was in a hallway, and a kid who was standing by his locker, just a few lockers away from me, was standing there with his books, and a senior big guy, bully guy, comes by, and... Uh, he humiliates this guy standing by the locker. He knocks the books out of his hands and starts screaming at this kid, pick them up, pick up those books. While the kid bent over to pick up the books, he started calling the kid terrible names, mostly questioning his masculinity and making observations about his mother and his mother's ancestry, if you know what I mean. So when the kid collected his books and he stood back up, this bully guy wound up, I'll never forget this as long as I live, and he started throwing punches at the face of this kid who was smaller than I was. And all of this happened so fast. I was just caught off guard, and then some other guys came and pulled the bully off this other kid before he was killed. I'll never forget that. It sickens me to this day. Beatings are tough to watch. You never forget the sights and the sounds and the terror involved. Now, Moses is watching an Egyptian guy just beating, smashing the nose and spattering the blood of one of his fellow Hebrews. There's a Hebrew who's already being worked to the bone. And Moses got to a point, he just couldn't take it anymore. The sights and the sounds and the splattering blood was too much, and something snapped inside of him. Verse 12 in, Ephesians, in Exodus 2 says, Glancing this way and that, he came to the defense of his countrymen. He just had to. Pulls the Egyptian off the Hebrew guy. And of course, then they start fighting. And Moses winds up killing that Egyptian. And he buried him in the sand. The scriptures go on to say the very next day, Moses goes out and he's looking at his people being oppressed again. And this day he sees two Hebrews beating each other up. Same sounds. 
same sights, the smashing of teeth and the splattering of blood. And he breaks the, the fight up, and he says, Why? Why are you beating a fellow Hebrew? What are you thinking? Our people are in forced labor. We get beat by Egyptians every day. That's bad enough. Don't fight with each other. And I think Moses just saw all the oppression and the frustration of the Hebrew people. And it took him to the absolute edge of his emotional limits where he thinks, I just can't stand this anymore. It's all madness. Now fast forward a few frames to the famous burning bush story, which is recorded in Exodus 3. You all know it. Moses comes to a bush that's on fire. It just doesn't get consumed. And at that bush, he hears the voice of God call his name, and God tells him to take off his sandals because he's standing on what? Holy ground. And as a kid in Sunday school, I used to have the impression that it was the shock and awe of that burning bush that scared Moses into leadership. But upon further reflection in more recent days, the burning bush, in my opinion, was just an attention grabber. It was just enough to slow Moses down long enough to hear what God had to say. Exodus 3, verse 7. Moses, get these words now. I, God, I have seen the misery of the people in Egypt. Seen the misery of the Israelites in Egypt. I have heard the sounds. I've heard them crying out. And I'm concerned about their suffering. And I'm going to rescue them. And I'm going to use you to do it. Now, fellow leaders, please get this if you get nothing else from this session. I think what's really happening here is God is saying, Moses, what you saw that day that made you so unbelievably angry, what you saw when the Egyptian guy was beating the living daylights out of that Hebrew slave, what you saw and heard when the two Hebrew guys were so frustrated and angry and hopeless about their situation that they started beating each other up. What you, have, what you have been seeing, I have been seeing, I have been hearing, I have been watching, and I can't stand it anymore either. And I'm stirred in my spirit, and I'm going to do something from heaven, and I'm going to assign you to be my emissary on earth, and I'm choosing you in part because I see you're stirred in spirit about the same thing that's stirring me. I see a passion in you for your people. I see your emotion. I see a man who can't stand idly by when his people are oppressed and beaten up. I see what it does to you inside, Moses. I see your capacity for activism. I've been looking for that. I've been looking all over, and I have found the man I want. I'm going to harness that internal firestorm of frustration that's raging in you, and I'm going to harness that and use it in a positive way to set my people free. That furnace of frustration is going to forge leadership, metal, and fortitude in you, and I'm going to use that. This is key to understanding leadership, in my humble opinion. God's heart and a human heart being aligned perfectly about, around what frustrates heaven and earth, what frustrates the character and nature of God, and what frustrates a potential leader to the point of absolute angst. Now, let me take a time out and come at this from a whole different angle. My generation here in the United States 
We all grew up watching a cartoon character called Popeye. And when we were growing up, we all watched on Saturday morning this cartoon about Popeye the Sailor Man. And he had a girlfriend, and uh, his girlfriend's name was Olive Oil. Olive Oil. I, I am interested how the translators are going to handle that. <laughs> now, Olive Oil, Olive Oil was a real traffic stopper. Men... Men whistled and dogs barked when she walked by. And uh, whenever anyone or anything would threaten the well-being of olive oil, Popeye would be easygoing about it at first, but then if things began to look ominous, if it looked like something terrible might befall his beloved olive oil, Popeye, the sailor man, would feel his blood pressure rising and his pulse racing, and it would go from one level to the next, and then he would say the words that a whole generation of Americans had burned into their psyche. That's all I can stand, say the rest with me. I can't stand no more. <laughs> Dubious grammar, I know. But he was a sailor man. That's all I can stand. I can't stand no more. And he would pop open a can of what? Spinach. And supernatural strength would flow into his body, mostly where? His biceps, yeah. And uh, he was anatomically improbable in the cartoon. <laughs> but at that point where that supernatural strength came into his biceps, he was unstoppable. He would crush the opposition and save olive oil from her distress. What a show that was. But that line, that single line, that's all I can stands, I can't stands no more. That means something to those of us in leadership. It means something to us at a profound level. It was probably something that we saw that we couldn't stands no more that first prompted us to get off our backsides and move toward the achieving of something worthwhile with our lives. When Moses couldn't stand seeing fellow Hebrews being oppressed and beaten, when he couldn't stand it, he was open and ready, and when God tapped him at the burning bush and said, I will use you, he said, then use me. What can't you stand? What is it? that you can't stand. What that is often creates the tension, the angst, the frustration, the internal firestorm in you, the capacity for activism that God speaks to you about someday that launches you into leadership. I'm calling it these days your holy discontent. What is your holy discontent? Maybe thinking about this from a few other Vantage points will help you understand the concept. David, King David in the Old Testament, as in David and Goliath. He's a young man. His father tells him to take food to his older brothers. He gets to where his older brothers are. They're in the army. There's an enemy giant who's trash-talking the God of the Israelites every day. And the brothers are a little bit uh, annoyed by it, but not all that much. David hears this heathen giant, trash-talking the God he loves, and he looks around and he says, who's going to do something about this? 
People say, he's nine foot tall. Not me, not me, not me. And it drives David crazy. He can't stand it. And he finally gets to his Popeye moment, and he goes, that's all I can stand. I can't stand no more. And just a little while later, he's running full speed with nothing but a slingshot and a smooth stone in his hand, just raw passion. How rational was that act? Where was the business plan and the pro forma and all that? (laughs) But God sees this raw, untamable, unbridled passion. He feels the holy discontent in David. And he goes, I'm going to aim that one stone like a laser-guided missile and take the giant out. And he did. There was a man named Nehemiah in the Old Testament. has a cushy job with a foreign king. He gets bad news from back in Jerusalem one day that the walls have been broken down and that people are vulnerable. And the really bad part is that neighboring countries are laughing out loud at the powerless God of the Israelites who can't reassemble his people to a a position of strength. Nehemiah thinks about it and he thinks about it more. And what does this powerful leader do? He breaks down bawling. (laughs) He thinks about it about God being laughed at, and he has his Popeye moment. He says, that's all I can stand. I can't stand no more. And he goes to the foreign king at the risk of his life, and he says, I need, I need a leave of absence and a whole bunch of equipment, a whole bunch of resources. And he leads one of the most impressive reconstruction efforts in recorded history, but what got him into the game? A holy discontent was something he couldn't stand. What can't you stand? I hope you know. Martin Luther King couldn't stand racial oppression as he saw it around him in the southern United States in the 50s and the 60s. He just couldn't stand the whites-only sign on the drinking fountains and bathrooms and restaurant doors. He couldn't stand the fact that blacks were always pushed to the back of the bus or the back of the educational opportunity line or the back of the employment or housing opportunity lines. And finally, the holy discontent in him brought him to his Popeye moment where he said, that's all I can stand. I can't stand no more. He knew that his activism would probably cost him his life, and it did. But the holy discontent inside of him was wrecking him. He really didn't have a choice. Just look at my life for a minute. I was comfortably preparing to run our family business that my father had spent his whole life preparing for my brother and I to run. The only problem was, as I was growing up, I attended churches that were so unbelievably inward-focused and self-absorbed Churches that didn't give a flying rip about people far from God. And as I was trying to stay focused on my business career and my business major in college, which was economics, and my minor, which was business administration, the holy discontentedness got the best of me. My dad wanted to invite a business friend 
who was just starting to get interested in God. He wanted to invite him to our little home church. And as a junior high kid, I pleaded with my dad, don't take him to our church. If he's got a spark of spiritual interest in his life, we will extinguish it in 60 minutes. Don't do it. When I was 17, I invited the wildest kid in my high school at his request to our church. It wrecked him. He never came back to a church to this day, but it wrecked me too. And the holy discontentedness continued to build until in my college years under the tutelage of Dr. Belazikian, when he was teaching me about the potential of the church, I had my Popeye burning bush experience where God said, Bill, I'm going to take that firestorm of frustration about churches that don't care for people far from God. And I know how much it wrecks you, and I'm just going to harness that and use it because it wrecks me too. And before you know it, we were renting a movie theater in Palatine and selling tomatoes door to door to raise money for sound and lights. This event, the Leadership Summit, 10 years ago, my frustration level got so high. I talked to so many church leaders, pastors that I respect and love, pastors who are more committed and better at what they do than, than me, for sure. And they wanted to get better in their leadership, but there was no event that focused solely on the spiritual gift of leadership. And the frustration just got to a certain level. I had a Popeye moment. Jimmy talked to you about it. I called him in my office. I said, that's all I can stand. I can't stand no more. I'll take time out of my summer study break. I'll drive back to Chicago. Jimmy, I don't care if there's five leaders. I don't care. It doesn't bother me. If there's five leaders each year for two and a half days, I'll pour my life into them because I can't live with this holy discontent anymore. The only way I can get rid of it is to get on a vision that speaks to it somehow, and what God does after that is his business, but I can't live like this. I'm going to ask you again. What can't you stand? Do you know? Most of us try to push away stuff that creates firestorms of tension and anxiety in us. Most of us feel the discomfort of that, and we want to medicate it somehow rent another movie. We want to go out and jump on a career track that keeps us a little bit disconnected from that firestorm of frustration. But I want to tell you, one of the most important things you can do is to identify the, the answer to the question, what is it that you can't stand? Is it injustice of some kind? When you're around extreme poverty, does it wreck you? When you see racist behaviors and the effects of prejudice, does it do something inside of you? When you see homelessness, when you see abused children, when you see AIDS, when you see immoral business practices, when you see a dysfunctional, slowly dying church, does it just wreck you? The church that I grew up in that was so dysfunctional finally closed its doors a couple years ago put a for sale sign on the property, the property my father had donated 
that our family had worked so hard to try to support this building and so and it had such great dreams. And when I heard that there was a for sale sign on that building, I drove three hours and I sat in front of that building with a for sale sign on it. And it wrecked me. And I wanted it to. I wanted it to just remind me what's at stake when a church dies. And they're dying all over the world. And I ask you the question again. What wrecks you? Crappy music? Does that wreck you? Passionless dancing? What about crooked politicians? What about when you watch over-entertained, under-challenged young people drifting further and further and further away from God? What happens when you see groups of young people, aimless and purposeless? Does it wreck you? You better know it wrecks you because it's probably wrecking God. And he's probably looking for someone who's getting wrecked just like he is. And I don't care how capable you are, how smart you are, how, you know, thin you are, how good-looking you are. It doesn't, it's not about that, friends. God's just looking for someone who gets wrecked about what he gets wrecked about, and then he wants to sign you up and give you a vision that will relieve, release, relieve that anxiety in you and get you on the solution side of something, and that will motivate you for a long time. Now let me settle down for a moment, take a chill pill, as my kids tell me once in a while. Can I be very like, painstakingly practical about this holy discontent thing for just a few moments? Let me give you several observations about it as I've been thinking about it. Uh, I don't believe that every time something affects you deeply that it automatically becomes your God-given calling or your personal assignment. I think as God works in our lives, turning us into fully devoted followers of Christ, turning us into increasingly compassionate people, I think many of society's ills should ring our bells and should break our hearts and prompt us to action of some sort. But I also believe that what we all ought to be looking for is that one cause, that one problem, that one situation that grabs us by the throat and just won't let us go. Stuff that causes so much damage to our soul that it brings us to a Popeye moment where we go, now that one, I can't stand, I can't stand no more. God, do you want me to do something about it? And when your burning bush experience occurs, you'll know it. And God will say to you, here's why I wired you up the way I did, and here's why you've had some of the life experiences. Here's even why you've had some of the pain that you've had. Because I have in mind for someone just like you to address this terrible problem, and I can use you because we're, we're both wrecked on this one. Let's do it together. I was talking with a Hispanic man a few months ago. I was talking about this subject matter, and I said, how did you wind up leading this multicultural church that's so phenomenally loving across racial lines and so? And the guy looked at me and he said, well, I grew up in a white church. We were the only Hispanic family and we felt devalued every single time we went to church. We weren't included. We heard the remarks. We saw the, the hate. 
And we finally got to a point where our family couldn't stand it anymore and we had to leave. And he said, when I walked out of that church the last time, I just said to myself, I can't stand racism in churches. And he lived with that until God gave him the vision to start a multicultural church, which he leads today in a magnificent way. So not every societal ill is your personal assignment, but there's one out there with your name on it because it wrecks you and it wrecks God and he wants you to do something about it. Here's another bit of counsel regarding holy discontent. If, as I've been talking about this, you can't seem to identify yours yet, don't give up too soon looking for it. Don't give up too soon looking for your holy discontent. It's never too late. I counsel people these days, keep exposing your heart and exposing your eyes to the needs in our world. Travel more. Visit other ministries and churches. Go into the inner city. Get amongst the poor. Visit an AIDS clinic. Go to a Habitat uh, project. But just keep exposing yourself to the needs in this world. And I really do believe that there will come a moment in time where, you're, where you will have that kind of moment and God will cause the angst in you to get to a level where you go, now I've got to do something about that. Now here's a, another observation about holy discontentment. When you find it, feed it. That sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? Most of the time when you have something very uncomfortable in your life, you want to get away from it. But if the plight of the poor becomes your holy discontent, increase your exposure to the plight of the poor. Rearrange your life so that you can see afresh the horrific conditions that some people are forced to live in and listen afresh to the frustration of those who are trapped in cycles of generational poverty. Just stay close to your holy discontent. I attend a struggling church in the summertime in the little city where I take my summer break. Part of the reason that I attend that church is because it's struggling. It's almost defeated. And I sit in the third to the last row week after week after week and feel the horrendous feelings of a defeated church. And it just does something in me. And on that drive home from church, from that church most weekends, sometimes it's a little different, but most weekends... I just feel that kindled holy discontentment that I want to give the rest of my life with a serving towel over my arm to help churches do better. Now, along these lines, can I do a brief time out here? Author Robert Quinn, brilliant man, Robert Quinn, he writes a lot on the subject of leadership. He has a theory. He calls it the fundamental state of leadership theory. The fundamental state of leadership theory. He argues that when a leader is gripped by a powerful passion, when a leader is gripped, gripped by what we've been talking about in this session here, when a leader is gripped or driven by a holy discontentment, Quinn says that he or she often enters a different state of mind where you care so much about getting results, you care so much about relieving the holy discontent in you, that you begin to lead on a whole different level. You surrender your ego in leadership because the cause can't afford your pride. you got to let it go. 
You open yourself up to any and all new ideas and inputs because the cause is more important than you having to invent all the good ideas on site. You concentrate at higher levels and focus more intensely because the cause demands it. You take risks that you normally wouldn't take because you have to. There's too much at stake. Your creativity kicks up a notch. You engage your team members on a much deeper level than you did previously because you're also driven by the need inside of you to relieve the holy discontent that you're catapulted into this leadership state of mind. This leadership state of mind. Your sense of urgency ennobles your leadership and kicks it up a notch. Recently, I had the opportunity to chair a meeting that brought together government leaders and business leaders and parachurch leaders who are all passionate about the AIDS in Africa pandemic. Now, the question I kept asking this strange collection of, of folks was, what could we accomplish together that none of us could achieve if we all stayed in our separate orbits? Now, what fascinated me from a leadership perspective was that our holy discontentment around that table was so high. We all wanted to relieve the suffering of people with AIDS so badly that everyone around the table functioned in Quinn's fundamental state of leadership, this leadership state of mind. Here was a room full of big dog leaders, as we've talked about in Summit's past, presidents of this and that and this and that. And there wasn't any grandstanding and no turf protection and no politicking and no ego-driven speeches. We listened intently. We thought creatively. We were willing to be risky. It was leadership at the highest levels. And as I flew home from that meeting, I wondered all the way back in the back of that plane, what would happen if pastors of local churches were so in touch with their holy discontent so driven by the passion to get God-honoring results, what would happen if pastors all operated in that fundamental state of leadership? What if pastors and their colleagues in leadership in local churches were just utterly wide open to the promptings of the Holy Spirit and say, God, we want your mind on this matter, and we already say yes to whatever you call us to do? What would happen if all of us in church leadership let go of pride and fear and the need to please and the need to control because the cause is too important for us to mess with that garbage? What would happen if all of us would invite our colleagues and teams to engage more? What if we would all take greater risks rather than sticking with the status quo? Can you imagine what could be released in churches all over the world if all of us were operating in that fundamental state of leadership? Well, I'm just naive enough to think that it's possible. But I think you're going to have to find your holy discontent first. There's a difference between a professional pastor and a pastor whose heart has been wrecked by a holy discontent and he's got to lead by a vision that relieves that holy discontent. Huge difference. I never want to be in a church with some professional pastor who's just putting in time so he can golf when he retires. I want to be in a church led by someone who's got some raging firestorm on the inside that he gets up or she gets up every day and says, this I must do. One final word about this holy discontent idea before I leave you, lead you in a little bit of time of reflection. And it has to do with hope. 
You know when you're leading in your area of holy discontent, that thing that wrecks you can wreck you. If you let pessimism take over from that faith-based optimism that God wants us to lead with. People who work a lot with the poor often get wrecked by working so much with the poor they get discouraged and dismayed. People who are trying to solve AIDS get overwhelmed. People who are trying to help people come to God and see that the figures are all going the wrong way, well, you can get discouraged and want to give up. And I just want to say, leaders, you cannot let hope die. You can't surrender your faith-based optimism. You have to keep on believing that with God all things are possible. You have to nurture the belief deep down inside of you that lost people can still get found and wandering people can still come home and sick bodies can still be healed by the power of God and poor people can still be lifted out of poverty. You have to believe that God answers prayer and that with God, he will find a way. But you've got to do self-leadership very carefully and keep hope alive in you because everyone takes their cue from you. Everyone takes their cue from you. If you're all hunched over and beaten down, if hope dies in a leader, game, set, match, the cause is done. You know what the world is asking Christian leaders today? The whole world, our whole broken, sorry world is asking Christian leaders, does it have to end like this? Does the darkness win in the end? Will tyrants rule and terrorists keep wreaking havoc? Will AIDS spread? Will racism win the day? Will violence and war continue? Will will hunger and homelessness increase? Will marriages keep breaking up? Will churches keep closing and posting for sale signs on them? Is this the human lot? Does it all have to end like this? And to those who whisper those kinds of questions to those of us in Christian leadership, we better have an answer. And it better be really clear. And I don't know what yours is, but here's mine. It does not have to end like this. It really doesn't. I believe this day, more than any other day I've ever lived, that in Christ and through Christ and because of Christ, it doesn't have to end like this. I really believe that sin still can be forgiven and that prayers can be answered and that relationships can be reconciled. I really believe that damaged trust can be restored and dead churches can be resurrected. I really believe it doesn't have to end like this. But we leaders of all people have to claim that hope and live in it and radiate it to others. And we have to proclaim that message of hope to everyone that God gives us the power to influence. And we have to proclaim it to our dying breath. And that's partially why God made us leaders, so that hope in this world wouldn't die. So it's got to live in you. It's got to live in you today. And you've got to keep hope alive so that you can energize people who so desperately need it. But as we close now, I want to... As we close, I'd like to ask you to all bow your heads for a second. And I want to ask you a really dangerous question. And the question is this. What can't you stand? I really mean this, friends. There is so much at stake here in our broken world. 
You know yourself. You know what it is that when you see it, when you hear it, when you're around it, it creates this emotion in you. It stirs your passions. It makes you stay awake at night. What is your holy discontent? And you need to know that that's not just some lottery thing. There's a reason why you grew up just like you did and why you've experienced what you've experienced and why you've traveled where you've traveled and why you've done what you've done. And along your life's path, you've seen something, you've felt something. And it's gripped you, it's stirred you. And you need to know that what it is that creates that firestorm in you, what's wrecking you is also wrecking the heart of a holy God. And he's looking for someone like you to label your holy discontent. And he'll birth a vision in you that will release energy in you because you'll start setting things that are wrong right. You'll start taking a situation of total defeat and you'll start racking up a victory, even if it's just in one life here or one life there. How I pray that you will all be in touch with your holy discontent. And please, friends, don't medicate it. Don't go out and rent movies and go places and make a bunch of money so that you can't, so that you don't have to pay attention to it. Feed your holy discontent. And when it just rises to that point where like Popeye, you say, I can't stand it anymore, God will birth a new vision in you. And you'll have the energy from him to go up the next hill. To those of you who know what your holy discontent is, are you risking enough for it? I really mean that. Are you risking enough for it? I mean, like, in what life are you going to go all out for the remediation of your holy discontent? It's the only one you have. Are you doing everything in your power, leading at the highest of levels, going on record as saying, with God's help, because I know it wrecks him as much as, as much as it does me, I'm going to spend every day of the rest of my life trying to bring hope and help to this brokenness that creates the firestorm in me. Now, God, I pray that you will speak to us by your Spirit. Whisper in our ears. Keep this on the forefront of our mind till every single person listening from every facility all over the world can say, here's what my holy discontent is. Here's what... God has given me a plan to do about it, and we're going to do it together till the day I die. I just ask you to stay in a posture of prayer and listening to God. What is your holy discontent? What is it? And then what are you doing about that? While you're praying, I kind of want to go out on a a limb. Maybe today as you're here, 
you think about your life and you think about what you've been about and you think about what you're up to, what you've done, you think about the wake that you're leaving behind your life, and maybe today you've realized that your holy discontent is how incredibly far your life is from the very best that God has for you, the very best that God created you for. Maybe as you look across the landscape of your life, you're just saying, you know, I've had all I can stands and I can't stands no more of, of me and what I've been about and what I've been up to and what I've set my hands to and all the things that I've done that I know don't please the heart of God. Maybe that's you. And maybe you're a person who's here today who's saying, you know, I love everything in this life more than I love God. And I don't think that's the way that it's supposed to be. Maybe you're a person here today going, I've been deceived by the devil and I've taken his bait, hook, line, and sinker. And yeah, I've got all the right stuff and for all the reasons that you can imagine, life should be going great, it should be perfect, but for the life of me, I just can't escape this reality that my soul is bankrupt. I'm all empty and I'm all hollowed out at a soul level. And my holy discontent is that I don't know God. And I'm tired of not knowing God. And I want to know Him. And I want to follow Him. And I want to give myself to His very best. I need God. I need a Savior. Because I'm bust without Him. And if that's you, if that's your heart today, I just invite you to tell Him as much. And you can do that in a prayer that you can pray right where you're sitting. The prayer that goes something like this. God... Forgive me, please. Forgive me, please, for going my own way, doing my own thing, forgetting about you and the life that you actually created me for. And God, what's true today is that I want you. I want a relationship with you, and I'm opening my heart and my life to you. Please come in. Please forgive me. As much as I get it in this moment, I acknowledge that Jesus loved me so much that he died for me. As if I were the only person on planet Earth, he died for me to bring me to God. I get it. And because of that gift, I say yes. Because of what you've done, because of my need, because of my shortfall, because of my sin, I say yes. And I repent and I turn from my sin, I turn from my own path, and God, I'm going your way. God, I need your help and I need your strength to begin this new life in you. Please, God. And I'm going to ask you to do something that's real, real bold today. If you prayed with me just then to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ, would you be so bold as to just lift your hands and lock eyes with me and just let me meet you eyeball to eyeball and just say, yep, that's me today. There. Yes. I stand with you and I say yes. Yes. And there, yes. And in the yes, in the back. Yes. Both of you. Yeah, and over here. I stand with all of you and I say yes.
Oh God, that we would be wrecked at a soul level for the things that break your heart, for the things that wreck you, God. That we might actually become like Moses, activating on those things, not just passively watching them and thinking, well, somebody will do something about that at some point. But God, that it might be us. That we all might be your sent ones. For your glory, for the sake of your name, for the sake of those who don't yet know you, for the sake of your coming kingdom, God. Impassion us for those things that you've called us to. And God, please, this is a hard prayer, but don't let us off the hook, please. Do not, God, let us off the hook. We want to be on it because we want to be all in with your plan and your activity, your unfolding purposes, God, please.